0: As most of you know, each weekend uh, the priests travel to various missions throughout the country, some we drive to, others we fly to. And so over the course of my brief four and a half years as a priest, I've had a number of various experiences in the airports while traveling throughout the country. I've also had the opportunity to meet many people from all walks of life, many different backgrounds. Uh, One time about a year and a half ago, I boarded a flight for Chicago. I was actually headed to St. Louis through Chicago. I took my seat and I removed my breviary from my bag and began to pray. For those who don't know, the breviary is the book, the official prayer of the church that all priests are bound to pray each day. And actually the obligation begins at the ordination to the first of the major orders, the subdiaconate. So I often pray it on the plane. I know a number of the other priests also prayed on the plane as they travel from one place to another, and many times other passengers will comment, thinking that it's the Bible. Well, on this particular occasion, I was reciting the divine office on the plane while people were boarding, and eventually a middle-aged lady sat down in my row. I was in the window seat, and she sat down in the aisle. I paused, praying the breviary and greeted her, and then I returned to my prayers. But out of the corner of my eye, I could see that she was staring intently at the bravier. About a minute or so later, she tapped me on the shoulder. and She asked me, which of the 66 books are you in? So I kind of smiled at this at first and realizing that she was speaking about the Bible. I explained to her that there's actually 72 books of sacred scripture in the Bible. And then I said, I'm going to guess that you're not a Catholic. And she said, yes. How did you know that? And I told her, because you asked me which of the 66 books I was in. So I then explained to her how Martin Luther decided to take this book out here and that book out there, and that's how they lost a few books from the Bible. The lady was very interested in what I had to say, and she actually ended up taking a holy card that I gave her with the prayer of the memorare on the back. Now, I mention this because, as I explained to this lady, the Catholic Church teaches there are 72 books of sacred scripture, 45 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, only three mention the glorious saint that you're going to hear about throughout the course of this retreat. The Gospels of St. Matthew, St. Luke, and St. John only they mention St. Joseph. However, his name appears in only about 15 verses taken from these three books. And the event in his life that I'm going to speak to you about this evening is not mentioned in any of these verses, and that is his death. Other than what we know from sacred scripture, not much is known about St. Joseph. We know from divine revelation that he was of the house of David, that he dwelt at Nazareth where he worked as a carpenter, and that he was a just man chosen by Almighty God from all eternity to protect the Son of God and his Virgin Mother. We know some details about the journey of Our Lady and St. Joseph to Bethlehem. We know about the flight into Egypt and the search for the child Jesus in Jerusalem, But other than that, we really do not know about the life and death of St. Joseph. All the other information that we have about his life has been handed down to us through sacred tradition. Some of these traditions are quite venerable, others are not so venerable, but nonetheless, they fill in the gaps, so to speak, of the life of St. Joseph. Now, among the many beautiful titles that are given to St. Joseph in his litany is the one patron of the dying. And St. Joseph is invoked as the patron of the dying, and in particular the patron of a happy death, because he died the most blessed and the happiest of deaths that anyone could ever die, a death in the presence of Jesus and Mary. It is the general opinion of Catholic scholars that St. Joseph died shortly before our Lord began his public life. So he would have died before our Lord worked his first public miracle at Cana. And this would be fitting because his mission in preparing for man's redemption had come to an end. It was therefore time for him to leave this world, to go to the limbo of the just, and to wait there with the saints of the Old Testament until our divine Savior suffered and died on the cross and thereby reopened the gates of heaven. How old was St. Joseph when he died? That we don't know. But according to an ancient Eastern tradition, he died in Jerusalem. This tradition tells us that St. Joseph accompanied Jesus and Mary to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast and that he died there on March 19th, shortly after celebrating the Pasch. This is why the church, who is the guardian of tradition, observe his feast each year on March 19th. And this is why we honor him in the month of March, because that is the month that he is said to have died. Now, naturally speaking, St. Joseph's life was one of hardship and toil. Just before our divine Savior was born, he had to make the exhausting four days' journey to Bethlehem. After our divine Savior was born, an angel appeared to him in his sleep and said to him, Take the child and his mother and fly into Egypt. Later, as a carpenter at Nazareth, St. Joseph faced many of the daily trials and difficulties that we face today. He had to work very hard every day to provide food, clothing, and shelter for Jesus and Mary. He practiced patience when things did not go his way in the workshop, even as he charitably dealt with angry customers who were unhappy about one thing or another. If you've ever worked retail, I can tell you from experience that you know what this would have been like. But in spite of all these things, St. Joseph's life was one of contentment and peace. Each day when he returned from the workshop, he returned to a foster son and a wife, both of whom loved him very much. And how dearly St. Joseph loved them. Thus, how hard it must have been for him to leave Jesus and Mary in death. And how hard it must have been for Jesus and Mary to be left by St. Joseph. If our divine Savior wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, how he must have wept at the death of St. Joseph? St. Peter Julian Amard tells us that when St. Joseph's last hour came, it was Jesus who informed him. And while St. Joseph knew what this separation would mean, he embraced it and he willed it because his will was so united to God's. We can well imagine Jesus and Mary kneeling beside the bedside of St. Joseph. St. Peter Julian Amard says that Jesus consoled his foster father and Mary soothed him with tender words. Jesus, says another priest, held St. Joseph's hands for many hours. Perhaps the Holy Family spoke of happy memories. Memories from their sojourn in Egypt or from their dwelling at Nazareth. Perhaps they spoke of the day that they would all be reunited in heaven. But whatever was said at that most sublime hour, was reserved for their ears only and is best left to our imagination. Finally, the hour of his departure from this earth came. Saint Joseph looked into the eyes of Mary and then into the eyes of Jesus. And seeing for the last time on this earth the sacred humanity of the eternal Son of God, Saint Joseph breathed forth his last. According to a tradition, St. Joseph never underwent any natural decay of strength. That is, he did not become feeble, he did, did not become weak in old age. That would be pretty nice. Although he grew old in years, the tradition goes, the strength of his body never diminished, nor was his eyesight weakened, nor did his memory fail him in the least. Rather, he retained all his powers and vigor, even as in the day of his youth. <clears throat> now, this does not mean that St. Joseph did not feel any of the fatigue from a hard day's work, does not mean that he did not endure any weariness. He felt fatigue and he endured weariness, tiredness. But as the tradition tells us, he simply did not undergo some of the infirmities that we undergo. In old age, St. Bede the Venerable, an 8th century doctor of the church, says that it was fitting that St. Joseph's death occurred at Jerusalem. And he says this because it was St. Joseph's desire to be buried with his forefathers, and thus he was buried in the Valley of Josephat. The Valley of Josephat, as you may know, is located just outside Jerusalem. And according to sacred scripture, it is in this valley that the general judgment will take place at the end of the world. It's also interesting to note that there are some saints, among them St. Francis de Sales, who are of the opinion that the body of St. Joseph was later assumed into heaven. Now, Keep in mind that this is only an opinion we know for certain that there are only two bodies in heaven right now, that of our Lord and our Lady. But it is an opinion, and St. Francis de Sales is a very great doctor of the church, his opinions hold a lot of weight, that St. Joseph was assumed into heaven. As to the cause of St. Joseph's death, it is the teaching of the saints that he did not die of sickness or old age. The cause of his death, according to the saints, was love. St. Francis de Sales and St. Alphonsus de Ligori in particular say that St. Joseph died of the pure love of God. Listen to what St. Francis de Sales writes in his excellent work, The Treatise on the Love of God. A saint, he says, who had loved so much during his life could not die save of love. And having completed the office for which he had been destined, it only remained for him to say to the Eternal Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, and to say to the Eternal Son, O my child, as thy heavenly Father placed thy body in my hands, on the day when thou camest into the world, so now, in this day of my departure from the world, I place my soul in thy hands. Such, I conceive, concludes St. Francis de Sales, was the death of this great patriarch. What a grace, right? To die in the embrace of Jesus and Mary. This is why the church encourages us to pray to St. Joseph for a happy death. For there is no death happier than in the presence of Jesus and Mary. And pray to him for a happy death we should. Every day we should do this, with our morning prayers, with our evening prayers. A little invocation to St. Joseph. And we should do this every day, because one day we too shall die. When God created Adam and Eve, He created them in his own image and likeness and in the state of sanctifying grace. And in addition to sanctifying grace, he bestowed upon them what we call the preternatural gifts. Very simply, preternatural means that which is above the natural but below the supernatural. Among the preternatural gifts which God gave to Adam and Eve and which were to be passed down to their descendants were immunity from concupiscence, In other words, our sense appetites were subject to our reason. Impassibility, there would be no suffering or pain. Infused knowledge, very simply, we wouldn't have to study. And finally, bodily immortality, we would not die. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost sanctifying grace and they lost all these preternatural gifts. When our divine Savior died on the cross, he redeemed us and he restored to us sanctifying grace. But in his infinite wisdom, he did not restore to us the preternatural gifts. Thus, man was created to be immortal. We were not supposed to die. But after that fateful day in the garden, everything changed. As St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into this world, and by sin death, so death passed upon all men. And thus, as he says in another epistle, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell are commonly referred to as the four last things. St. Ignatius, Loyola, and nearly all retreat masters insist that these topics be considered in the yearly retreat. And they insist on this because these things pertain to our last end and are thus most serious matters. They are matters which, when considered without anxiety, without worry, without an inordinate fear, are of the greatest help in leading a good Catholic life. For as we read in the book of Ecclesiasticus, in all thy works, remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin. Even Holy Mother Church reminds us of these great truths. Each year on Ash Wednesday, she reminds us of death and the last thing. For when the priest imposes blessed ashes upon our foreheads in the sign of the cross, he says to us these words, Remember, man, that thou art dust, and into dust thou shalt return. These words were first uttered over 6,000 years ago by Almighty God to Adam and Eve. He spoke them to Adam and Eve after they sinned and thereby brought death into the world And now every year, the church says them to us to remind us that one day we will die. The ashes themselves actually are a reminder of how quickly this life passes. And it passes very quickly. When you're young, it seems like things go very slowly. Week to week, when you're 13 years old, 14 years old, it's very slow. When you turn 21, it speeds up a little bit. 28, 30, picks up a little bit more as I'm experiencing now. And then I'm told by others that when you get to 40 and 50 and 60, it's like a flash. Remember, man, that thou art dust, and into dust thou shalt return. You know, people I would say for the most part, especially our worldly-minded people today, and for those who seek for nothing but pleasure, these people don't like to think about death. They despise it. Sure, they are reminded of it when a relative dies or a friend dies, they go to the wake and the funeral. But otherwise, they cannot banish the idea of death from their minds fast enough. They consider it as morbid, unhealthy and disturbing. Some people are even afraid to tell their family that they're dying. Many people, especially young people, think of death as something far off, at a distance. Something that's not going to affect them until they've lived life to the fullest. And then there are some, among them the co-founder of Google, who are so proud and caught up in this world that they actually think that they can discover a way not to die. It blows my mind. There are some rather wealthy people, you may have heard, who are investing billions and billions of dollars in researching bodily immortality as if they think they're going to find the answer. They're not going to succeed, of course, And in spite of their efforts, one day they will die. I'm sure each of us in this room could think of a number of things that we could use even a million dollars on, let alone billions and billions on researching something that's going to end in frustration anyway. They're not going to succeed. And thus it is very clear that the Catholic view of death is very different from the worldly view. Furthermore, in spite of the many people who turn away from the thought of death, despite their presumption that the hour of death will not come for a long time, the hour of death draws nearer and nearer each day and is likely to surprise them and us when we least expect it. It's as though at the moment of our birth, Almighty God flipped over an hourglass. You know the hourglass with the sand in it? flip it over, and it starts pouring through to the bottom. It's as though Almighty God did that at each of our birth, We all have our own hour The Sand begins to trickle through. Some have more sand in the top. Others have less. Our own everyday experience shows us how true this is. One day we may hear about a little boy who died, another day about a little girl, an athletic youth, Another day about an elderly man. One minute we might hear about a man in the prime of his life. And another minute about a mother of many children. Death is not a respecter of persons. It comes for the old, yes, but it does come for the young. It comes for the saints as it did for St. Joseph. And it comes for sinners. And it often comes, as our Lord himself warned us, like a thief, like a thief in the night. Be you then also ready, our divine Savior exhorts us. For at what hour you think not, the Son of Man will come. Holy Mother Church therefore counsels us, prepare yourself. Make ready for that day which is certain and uncertain. And of course, the certainty is that we will all day, all one day die. But the uncertainty is when. When that day will be. And thus, when someone is diagnosed with an illness, which is destined to take their life, such a person should actually be grateful to God And it sounds funny to be grateful to God for dying. But that person should be grateful because he has a time frame. He has time to prepare to get ready. And that is such a blessing. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of Alexander the Great. He was without a doubt one of the greatest military geniuses in the history of the world. He was born in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, in about the year 356 B.C. He died about 32 years later in 323 B.C. And I say that he is one of the greatest military geniuses in history because what he accomplished in just 12 years as the young king of Macedonia was truly astounding. He conquered the entire known world at his time the entire world. He could actually say that he ruled the world. In fact, after completing his final military expedition, it is said by an ancient Greek writer named Plutarch that after conquering that last place, Alexander knelt down on the ground and he began to weep. He cried. And he cried because there was, as it were, nothing left for him in this life. He had conquered everything. And it's as though there was nothing left for him in this life. So he went. But even though he had everything this life could offer, even though he owed nothing to the world, no debt to no man, there was one debt from which he was not exempt. And that is the debt that all men must pay. And soon after conquering the world, he came to this realization. One day on his way home to Macedonia, Alexander fell seriously ill. The doctors were called, but there was nothing they could do for him. He was dying, and he knew his end was near. As he lay there waiting to die, he realized that all he had accomplished was as nothing. He understood how his conquests, his great army, his great weapons, all of this, his wealth, were no longer of any consequence. That these things could not help him. Indeed, what had been important to him only a matter of days ago now meant nothing. It is said that shortly before his death, he called in his top-ranking general, and he decided to state to them his last wishes. I will depart this world soon, he said, and I have three last wishes. My first desire, said Alexander, is that my doctors and physicians must carry my coffin, no one else. Secondly, I desire that when my coffin is being carried to the grave, the path leading to the graveyard be strewn with gold, silver, and the other precious possessions which I accumulated in life. My third and final wish, he said, is that both of my hands be kept dangling outside my coffin as I'm carried to the grave. Hearing these rather strange requests, the generals asked him, in so many words, why do you make these rather bizarre statements? Why do you want your hands dangling outside of your coffin? Alexander said, I make such requests because I want the world to know of three lessons that I have learned. The first lesson I want people to learn is by my physicians carrying the coffin. And I want them to carry my coffin because people should realize that no doctor on this earth can really cure anybody when his time has come. They are powerless and they cannot save a person from the clutches of death when his time has come. So let people not take life for granted. Let the riches that I have gathered throughout my my life cover the path to my grave to show that not a single piece of gold is coming with me. I spent my entire life earning riches and honors, but I cannot take them with me. And so let people know that it is a waste of life to chase wealth and worldly honor. and dangle my hands from my coffin, Alexander said, to show that I came into this world as I leave it with empty hands. With these words, the king closed his eyes, and soon after this, the mighty conqueror allowed death, so to speak, conquer him. One day, the sand at the top of our our hourglasses is going to run out, as it did for Alexander the Great. And when it does, there is no doctor, as Alexander pointed out. There is no physician. There is no one who can stop it. It does not matter how many friends or relatives we have, It does not matter how much money or material possessions we have. When we depart this life, the honors, the possessions, the riches, the friends, the family members are not coming with us. We will leave this world as we entered it with empty hands. And the only thing that will matter at that moment is whether we are in the state of sanctifying grace or not. God alone knows when that moment will be. We, we don't know. It is not for us to know, but it is for us to be prepared for how often we hear about tragedies in which lives are lost. I mean, when you really think about it, how many shootings have happened in recent years? How many people have died in boating accidents, house fires? And while these incidents are devastating tragedies and utterly heartbreaking for the families who lost loved ones, while it is devastating, it should also be a reminder to us that we must be prepared for death. Do you think that when such people woke up that morning, they thought even for a split second they would die. Perhaps. Were they ready for judgment? We hope and pray. Did they have time for an act of contrition? Making an act of contrition at the point of death is not the easiest thing in the world, depending on the sort of death. A couple years ago, I want to say two years ago, I was flying again to St. Louis and I had the flu, not the stomach flu, but the flu with the chills, the body aches and everything. And I'm going through the TSA line and this TSA security guard said, Father, you don't look so good. I said, yeah, you know, I'm not feeling too good, but I'll make, he's like, you shouldn't be flying. I said, no, I'll be all right. So I go through, and it was the first Saturday of Lent, actually, so I didn't really have anything to eat. I don't think that all matters. So I get on the plane, and I'm feeling okay, you know. But as soon as we start boarding, I'm sitting there. I'm trying to pray in my office. And figure I'm just not going to do that right now. have my coat on. I'm shivering because I'm freezing, but I'm sweating because I'm baking. So I'm like, all right. So I drink water, chug water, you know. Soon we take off. About an hour into the flight, I feel like I'm going to get sick, okay? Yeah. So I had an elderly couple next to me, and the husband was on the outside. He was sleeping, and the wife was in the middle. So I tapped on the shoulder. I said, yeah, I think I'm going to get sick. She's like, oh, you're going to get sick? I'm like, yeah. I might. I might. You know, I'm just going to go to the back just in case. So she wakes her husband up, you know, and they both get up and they walk out. And I walk out into the aisle, and I make the turn to go to the back of the plane, that's the last thing I really remember. Everything went blurry. I went straight down. Plop. Right down the middle. Now, okay, that was I passed out, okay. But I was thinking about it, I'm thinking if if that was the moment of death, there's no act of contrition happening here. I went straight down and actually the next thing I when I finally came around, I was laying there in the middle of the plane and I just heard the the page over the thing, if anybody has any medical experience, please come to the back of the plane. And I'm laying there, and they put the oxygen mask on me. I said, I'm all right. Please let me up, you know, but they, they didn't listen to me. So anyway, they let me sit up, and everybody, I'm in towards the back. Everybody's looking down the aisle. It's like, yes. I just gave them the thumbs up. for good, you know. Got up. Um, the doctor actually, there happened to be a doctor on the plane. Kind of crazy. He told me that my face was white as my shirt as I walked out into the aisle. He knew I was going down. So <laughs> we got better seats because of it, though. They moved me up, so it worked out. The doctor came with me, so it was kind of nice. But um I only mentioned that going back to the active contrition thing because we don't know. We might have time for an active contrition, but if that was my last moment, you know, I could have somehow swayed off and cracked my head on a chair. Somehow I went right down the middle. I don't know how I did that. But the, the doctor did say that once I hit He said the thud was enormous and he said the flight attendants went sprinting up the aisle. <laughs> wish somebody had it on film, but that's, that's all right. You know? We don't know if we're going to have time for an act of contrition. We don't know. And here's another statistic. This is actually an interesting th- statistic here. And it sounds like an exaggeration almost, but I, I think it's worldwide. 3,287 people die in car accidents every day every day. Over 3,000 people. Again, it could be just our country, but it might be worldwide. That's a lot of deaths in a car accident. But were these people prepared? Every so often, driving to wherever I'm I'm going, I'll see an accident, some worse than others. There's ambulances there. We usually pull over to see if the person is in danger of death and wants to see a priest. But How many people don't get that option, that opportunity, rather, that privilege? And then how many other deaths occur each day, ones we don't even hear about? Sudden, unexpected deaths. Be you then also ready, says our Lord, for at what hour you think not the Son of Man will come. Wouldn't it be easy if we knew the day and the hour? It would be so easy. We could plan everything. We could make sure we got the confession, we got the sacraments, we got to mass, all of our affairs are in order. It would be so easy. But we don't have the luxury of knowing this. And so we must be ready. We must be prepared because after death, we will be judged on everything. Every thought, every word, every deed, every omission every moment of our life, the things we know and even the things we have forgotten. All these things are recorded in God's book and he will judge us on them. At the end of the world on the last day, Christ will come as he himself said in glory and majesty. And he will come to judge as we pray in the Apostles' Creed the living and the dead. When he returns on the last day, all mankind will be gathered together before the judgment seat of the Son of God. He will return with a host of angels at his side, and the angels will separate the good from the wicked. Our Lord will then begin the judgment, and all mankind will see how good and patient he was towards sinners. and how just and rewarding he is to those who followed him. We will know why this person was saved and why this person was not. We will know. St. Alphonsus actually says that there will be many surprises on Judgment Day, meaning, of course, that some people we thought would have been saved didn't make it and some that we thought would have been condemned, complied with a special grace and were saved. But we will know the exact reasons why so-and-so was saved and why so-and-so was condemned. Our Lord will judge the works of every man, and after judgment has been passed, the blessed will be taken up to heaven, while the damned will be condemned to hell for all eternity. St. Althonsus says that, After the judgment has been completed, the earth will open up. The damned will fall into the pit of hell as the just ascend into heaven. And part of the punishment of those who are going to hell is going to be to watch those who are saved ascend. And having fallen into hell, wheresoever they fall, in whatever position they fall, there they will remain for all eternity. You won't be able to move in hell. So if you fall on your head, you will be on your head for all eternity. This judgment is what we call the general or the last judgment. It takes place, as I said, at the end of the world when our divine Savior returns. But there's another judgment which takes place immediately after the death of the individual person. And that is called the particular judgment. I want to read to you what the Catechism of the Council of Trent says of the particular judgment. When each one of us departs this life, the Catechism says, he is instantly placed before the judgment seat of God, where all that he has ever done, spoken, or thought during life shall be subjected to the most rigid scrutiny, that there is a particular judgment is a teaching which theologians call proximate to the faith. And a teaching proximate to the faith, as theologians tell us, is a teaching which is regarded as a truth of divine revelation. And thus, immediately after our death, we will be summoned, as St. Paul says, to render an account to Almighty God for ourselves. And our judgment, God will say to us, As the rich man said to the steward in the parable of the unjust steward, give an account of thy stewardship. God will ask us, as he asked Cain after Cain murdered his brother Abel, what hast thou done? In his book called Preparation for Death, St. Alphonsus de Liguori gives a rather vivid description of the particular judgment. This is what he writes. It is the common opinion of theologian, St. Alphonsus says, that the particular judgment takes place on the very spot where the soul is separated from the body. No sooner will it have departed from the body than it will appear before the tribunal of God to be judged. The judge is almighty God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your accuser is will be your mortal enemy, the devil, who will charge you before your face with what you have done, stating the day and the hour in which you have sinned. The matter of the trial will be your sins. Your sentence will be without appeal. You will not have the power of calling your parents, your family, your friends to your aid for all must be concluded between God and the soul. You will then, he continues, see the deformity of your crimes. You will be examined upon all your sins of thought, word, and deed, even as you will be examined upon your sins of scandal and omission. You will thus, St. Alphonsus concludes, be weighed in the scales of divine justice. And the sentence divine justice will mete out will ultimately be one of two. To the condemned, our divine Savior will say the most sorrowful, the most painful, the worst thing anyone could ever hear. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels but to the blessed. To the blessed he will say the most joyful, the most glorious, the most sublime words anyone could ever hear. Come ye blessed of my father, possess you the kingdom which was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It is to hear these words, come ye blessed of my father, It is to hear these words at our judgment that we were created. God did not make us in order to say to us, Depart from me, ye cursed. He did not create us to suffer in hell for all eternity. If that were the case, he never in a million years would have sent his divine son into this world to suffer and die to save us. He wouldn't have done it, but he did just this. It was to save men from the terrible torments of hell that Almighty God sent His divine Son into this world. And it was to redeem men that the eternal Son of God suffered, as it were, the very pains of hell inflicted upon Him by our sins. And He did this because He loves us. That's why He did. He loves each and every one of us with a special love. And he desires our eternal happiness with an infinite desire. God desires that we are happy more than we desire that we want to be happy. And he desires that we save our souls more than we desire to save our souls. Hell was created by God as a punishment for those who freely choose to turn away from him by willful and deliberate mortal sin. It was made for those who freely choose to reject him, to not believe in him, nor to love him by not keeping his commandments. And thus the cause of eternal damnation is not God, but the willful and deliberate mortal sins of men. God created us for heaven for heaven you know whenever you buy something at the store whether it's a piece of machinery clothing tools whatever whether it's on the box or on in the case of clothing on the tag it says made somewhere commonly you see made in china made in indonesia Um, but now things are getting a little bit better here. There's more made in America, made in the USA. Everything that is sold here, you'll find that on there. At our baptisms, when we were baptized, and sanctifying grace was poured into our souls, and that indelible baptismal character was stamped upon our souls, our souls were marked in a certain sense with these words, made for heaven, made for heaven. Even six-year-olds, seven-year-olds studying for their first communion, the catechism, even they know this. When you ask them the catechism question, why did God make you? They will answer, God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in the next, to be happy with him forever in heaven. That's why we were created. We were made for heaven. This actually reminds me. <clears throat> go off a little bit here. Reminds me of a sick call that I had. I want to say about a year ago, probably more like two. It's that that time speeding along thing. It's that running together. So I was called to a hospital to anoint this man and administer the sacrament of extreme unction. I never met him in my life and I had no idea what to expect. And so I was quite surprised when I walked into the hospital room and saw that he was mid to late 30s, and he was dying. So in the midst of our conversation, we were talking about his family and what he did for a living. But in the midst of his conversation, he said to me some words that really made an impression on me. He said, Father, life is short but heaven is forever. If only more people would realize that and live their lives accordingly. Life is short, but heaven is forever. How true those words are. How true they are. And you know what the best part about it is? Heaven is in the reach of each and every one of us here this evening. It's right there within our grasp. In the Old Testament book of Job, we read these thought-provoking words. Behold, short years pass away, and I am walking in a path by which I shall not return. The path that Job is speaking of here, writes a certain religious, is the path of our life. It is the path that ultimately leads to our death. And it is a path on which we cannot retrace any of our steps. Each step brings us nearer to death. Each thing we do today is done for the last time. That particular action here and now, will never be done again. Sure, we can repeat certain actions, we can repeat certain words, but those words said the first time or the second time will never be said again. They are past. We shall never have that half hour back, which perhaps we wasted. We shall never have that opportunity of talking to someone which we had yesterday, it is gone beyond recall. Yesterday's opportunities of being bright and cheerful, good-tempered, charitable, unselfish, patient, diligent, where are they, the author asks, they are gone. We may have others, but we shall not have those we are walking in a path by which we shall not return. It is as we walk the path of this life that we must prepare for our last end, and in particular for our death. For the moment of death sets the tone for the last thing. The moment of death will decide the outcome of our judgment and it will decide whether we will spend eternity in heaven or, God forbid, in hell. Remember, man, the church admonishes us that thou art dust and into dust thou shalt return. Remember, man, that one day you will die and perhaps at a time you think not. You must therefore be ready. You must be prepared. And we prepare, we make ready for our death by following in the footsteps of St. Joseph. That man, that glorious saint, he knew how to live but he certainly knew how to die. He is thus a model for us to imitate in preparing for a good death. As Bishop Carroll mentioned in the beginning, uh, introductory conference, throughout the course of this retreat, you are going to learn many things about St. Joseph, things he may have known, but then some things he may not have known. You're going to learn about his life, you're going to learn about the virtues that he practiced to an eminent degree. And in doing this, you are going to learn indirectly how to prepare for death. But two things that he didn't, did in particular that I would like to point out in this conference were these two. He kept his priorities straight. That was the first thing he did to prepare. He kept his priorities straight. And the second thing, he had a great love and devotion for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Throughout his life, St. Joseph kept his priorities straight. He gave God and Our Lady the first place in his life. Everything else, his work, his recreation, even his relaxation, everything was subordinate to God. We can imitate him we too can prepare for death by keeping our priorities straight in this life. This is unfortunately an epidemic in the world today. Many people do not have their priorities straight. You may know some of these people. Far too many people, even some Catholics, put the pleasures and the things of the world above God and the practice of the faith. Now, they may not say that. They may not say that they value the things of the world more than they value their faith. But in the practical order, they proclaim it very loudly by the way they live. For them, God and the practice of the Catholic faith are mere afterthoughts. God and the faith come after the pleasures and enjoyments of the world, after the work and school, after the material goods and entertainment. If I have time, such people tell themselves, I'll say my morning and evening prayers. If I have time, I'll get them in. If I can squeeze it somewhere in my day, I'll say my rosary. If I don't have something else going on, I'll go to Mass on Sunday. If it's convenient, I'll avoid that occasion of mortal sin. sadly for some, God is even placed after other people. Such ones prefer the company of other persons more than God, even if such a person is an occasion of mortal sin for him. They prefer his company more than that of God. If we have lived like this in the past, let us resolve during this retreat to put things in their proper perspective. And let us do this while we still have time to do so. We were, as I mentioned, created to know, love, and serve God in this world and to be happy with him forever in heaven. That is our purpose. That is why we are in the world. There are a number of people out there who have been influenced by the godless, atheistic professors in the universities and so on who will say, I don't know what my purpose is. I'm still trying to figure that out we don't have to figure it out. We can open up the catechism and we see it right there. To know, love, serve God in this world and to be happy with him forever in heaven. That's our purpose. And everything we do, whether it's work, recreation, or whatever, everything we do should help us to fulfill this purpose. If someone or something does not, if it does the opposite, if it leads us away from God, away from saving our soul, then we have to get it out of our lives. Or if it's a person, we have to break up the friendship if it is a friendship. In a word, we must take the occasions of sin very seriously and we must avoid them. For such things and persons constitute approximate danger to our eternal salvation. St. Joseph also prepared for death by fostering a true love and devotion to our Blessed Lady. Indeed, after our Divine Savior, he loved her the most and was the most devoted to her, working for her, seeking her counsel, loving her most perfectly. Let us, too, foster a great devotion and love for our Blessed Mother. And let us do this by making some little sacrifices in reparation to her immaculate heart. A little sacrifice each day for Our Lady. Let us do it also by praying to her in time of temptation and by raising our minds and hearts to her throughout the day with a little mental invocation. Something very simple. Mother Mary, I love thee. Mother Mary, Ever-Virgin, help me to save my soul. Little invocations such as these may be used, or you can even offer up little prayers to Our Lady mentally in your own words. There's actually on the smartphones, you can set little reminders, right? The iPhones, you can set them with the Samsungs, I believe. You can set reminders. And so to get yourself in the habit of making these little mental invocations, you can set a reminder on your phone. Type out the little invocation, Mother Mary, I love thee, or Sacred Heart of Jesus, I trust in thee. Then have it come up at a time. We get so busy. Life happens, things come up. We might forget. We might get off retreat and get into a decent habit of using these invocations. But as life goes on, we might we might forget. We set a reminder It'll pop up at that little alert on the screen. Mother Mary, I love thee. Oh, just by reading it, you're raising your mind and heart to God. With all the technology out there, let's use it to help us save our souls. It's very powerful, very, very powerful. And so I encourage you to do this. You could have a different one for each day. You could have multiple ones just to go off at different times throughout the day. It's a very, very powerful means to help stay recollected but to help us keep in the presence of Our Lady. And then, of course, wear her brown scapular lovingly and be faithful to the daily and devout recitation of the rosary. Set aside those 15 minutes each day to honor her. And if you already do this, Strive to pray it better each day. And Our Lady, for her part, will protect us in this life. And she will protect us, not only in this life, but at the hour of our death. And she will plead our case and our judgment. If Our Lady is at your judgment, you are saved. Because as a certain holy priest once said, Our Lady does not go to see her children condemned. I don't know about you, but that's what I'm going to be looking for when I get to my judgment. Probably going to, you know, wake up at judgment, you know, kind of look through the finger a little bit, try and hope to see her. It would be the heights of cruelty, the worst practical joke ever if she were hiding in a corner somewhere. You got to your judgment, you're looking around for for the blue, her color, and you don't see it. So, At your judgment, look for Our Lady. Look for the blue, her color. You see blue? It's like a green light on the road. You're good to go. Look for the blue. If we follow St. Joseph's holy example throughout our lives, if we pray to him each day for a holy death, and if we do our part, if we do our part in striving to secure such a death by preparing now, we can have the utmost confidence that we will die in God's good grace. For to die in the state of grace as St. Joseph did is in a certain sense to die in the arms of Jesus and Mary. And having done this, we will be ready to go confidently to our judgment. And we will be worthy with St. Paul to say at that moment these words. I have fought a good fight I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. As to the rest, there is laid up for me a crown of justice, which the Lord, the just judge, will render to me in that day.